Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Professor Phil Benson, Professor of Applied Linguistics and Director of Multilingualism Research Center at Macquarie University. Dr. Benson, welcome to Lost in Citations. Uh, hey, welcome. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. How's it going in, in Sydney? We're back on campus again for the we most of last year was uh, online teaching. So now we're back on campus for those students who want to. So that's good. It's good to see good to see faces around and <laughs> young people again. Can you talk a little bit about the Multilingualism Research Center? Yeah, that's a uh, research center that we have um, in the now it's in the Faculty of Medicine, which is the faculty that my department's my linguistics department is part of. But it's a cross-disciplinary center, mm -hmm. and it involves um, mainly people from linguistics and education. Uh, but we also have a few people involved from media, uh, particularly also from geography, uh, people who do demography and migration and this kind of issue. So, so it's a center we've tried to set up across departments. Um, I guess it's what you'd call a virtual center. We we have a little bit of funding, but um, we don't have a building, <laughs> okay, or offices or anything like that. But um, you know, we're a way of kind of organizing people across. Uh, across different departments of the university to get people working together and exploring questions of, of multilingualism. And that's, um, that's something that's uh, very important in Sydney. I think we're, we're extremely multilingual city and Macquarie is, is in one of the most multilingual districts of that city. So it's really um, trying to make linguistics research relevant to the the place where we are and the situation we're in well let's let's go back in time and learn a little bit about your background uh growing up in manchester what mm -hmm. what brought you to your current position as far as going through your bachelor's and your master's and your phd going through hong kong getting interested in this topic can you can you give us a little bit of your background yeah um i guess um what connects my childhood with with where I am now is simply that I studied languages and, you know, I got a taste for studying languages and interest in languages at school. Um, that was mainly French and German. Hmm. Um, at university, I did sociology because if you go to university, you want to study something you, you didn't study at school. Mm -hmm. And I studied sociology. Um, but we also did a certain amount of sociolinguistics mm -hmm. um, within that. And um, when I graduated, um, actually, that was a time of quite high. That was in the 1970s. It was a time of quite high graduate unemployment. Mm. Um, and one of the things you could do was go overseas and teach English. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did. I did a... Um, a uh, training course to teach English, and um, I, I I went to work overseas. Uh, I went to I was in Algeria, uh, in Kuwait, I think um, the Seychelles next, and Malaysia and Japan, and finally ended up in Hong Kong, where I stayed for about about twenty years uh, so before I came to Australia. 
when did you do your master's and PhD in Hong Kong? No, um, I did my master's. Um, I should say thank you to an organization called the Center for British Teachers, um, which organized um, e EFL teaching contracts in various places from, from London. Uh, one of those was at the time they had a contract with the uh, school system in Malaysia. Mm. Um, and they also had scholarships for people to do master's degrees. Oh, okay. um, so they so they so they would pay your fees. So I took advantage of that. So that was um, while I was in Malaysia. And after I finished my contract there, um, I came back to Exeter University in the UK and did a master's degree there. And I also did the, the PhD there, although I, I left Exeter and uh, was working overseas when I finished the PhD. What was your thesis for your PhD? Um, my thesis was uh, on the, it's called the, it was on the lexicography of English as a world language. Um, there, there's a book, there's a very old and obscure book called um, Ethnocentrism and the English Dictionary, which was actually my PhD thesis. And um, essentially the research was about how English dictionaries treat English um, in different parts of the world. Um, and the, the empirical part of that was really investigation of how the Oxford English Dictionary and a, a number of other dictionaries deal, dealt with China, um, which as the title suggests is in, was in a rather ethnocentric way. Wow, that seems very different from what you're doing now. Uh, well, it's, um, it, it, it is and it isn't. Actually, the, the book that I've got coming out uh, soon, The Language Learning Environments, which is um, has a lot about theories of space, uh, is actually, oh. to a certain extent, it goes back, goes back to those ideas because I was very interested in, at that time, in, in, um, in, in language, in sort of the geography of language, if you like, the geography of mm. English particularly. I see. Um, so, so what I'm interested in right now um, does go back <laughs> to that. But um, well, let's let's give there, a there's been quite there's been quite a gap in the middle when I I guess I I haven't done that. Um, uh, when I was uh, well, so real, I, real I, quick, real quick, let's give a plug for that book. That's uh, language okay. learning environments, spatial perspectives on SLA. And if you go yeah. to our website, I have posted a link. You can click that link, and if you type in the code LLEBEN50, you can get 50% off if you purchase before June 31st, before the end of June. So you, by the time you hear this episode, you'll have about a month, um, so you can get 50% off uh, and buy that buy that book. So and that, and that book is related to the chapter we're going to be talking about today, which is a day in the life mapping international students' language learning environments in multilingual Sydney. So uh, it all it does it does connect. You're saying so the, the when I when I yeah. hear dictionary and Oxford and then I know you're in linguistics. I think I just can't. Yeah, and and this this article that we're talking about today is all about storytelling and gathering you know narrative and you know data and quality. So I from just as a, as a rube on the outside looking in, I think oh it's totally different. But you're saying no as far as space. in a way it's 
In a way, it's different because I, I'm no longer really interested in dictionaries. Well, I am interested in dictionaries. I, I, I love dictionaries, actually. But as a research topic, I'm no longer interested in dictionaries. Um, but the the connection is the is the idea of really language in the world. I see. Um, and, and the geography of language. I saw sort of a quick 10-question interview on, on the Macquarie website. And mm -hmm. I think one of the questions was one of what's one of the I can't remember the, exactly the questions. One of the scariest things you've ever done, or one of the craziest things you've ever done. It said, you know, packed packed everything up from Hong Kong and moved to Sydney. So that kind of implied that you were ready to live the rest of your life and and finish out your career in Hong Kong. That's kind of what you, the answer implied. What so what what made that was that a hard decision? Uh, well, I gotta I gotta tell you something close to my close to telling you how old I am. Um, the situation in Hong Kong was, I, I was there for 20 years and very, very well settled down, you know, but at that point, I really thought that I, you know, Hong Kong was where I lived, where I came from. Mm -hmm. um, but they have a compulsory retirement age in universities there at 60. Oh, okay. And I was getting close to that age. And um, um, at that point, um, I learned that Macquarie University was looking for a um, a professor of applied linguistics. Um, I'd had a, quite a few connections with people at Macquarie uh, before that, particularly with um, with David Noonan and Chris Candlin, um, who, who, of course, neither of them are there now. Um, and um, yeah, I, I I thought, why not do that? Why not try? Why not have a go at that? And I was very fortunate that they offered me a job. The timing. Um, the timing seems good. With all the unrest that's been happening in Hong Kong recently, or is that is that sort of an ignorant thing to say? Was there was there always a bit of unrest there? Is that um, something you could have no. dealt with? Um, well, uh, a lot of a lot of friends are dealing with that. So yeah, I guess so. Uh, that was not a factor in leaving, and it was it was not really an issue at the time. Although that was 2014, although in fact 2014 was the first uh, what they call the umbrella movement. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the first sort of wave of that. Um, it was, um, I, I think it was predictable, but it was not something that really factored into decision to move. Mm. Um, all right. Well, let's let's talk about the paper again. It's a day in the life. Sure. Mapping International Students' Language Learning Environments in Multilingual Sydney. Uh, I, I really loved reading this paper because it's so different from the type of research that I'm doing. It mm -hmm. seems very free as far as exploratory research. And you even mentioned you didn't have a specific research question. And you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're sort of tracking people's exper experiences, uh, which is really exciting. So I guess before we get into the 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 meat of the paper can you talk a little bit about your approach to exploratory research and why it's important in the field of multilingualism research um it well it's ex, it's exploratory research it's also narrative uh research it's about storytelling and mm -hmm. um and uh, i would come to it really from that perspective of narrative um, although narrative research is generally exploratory research, um, it, 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 to me, it's, um, 
it's an approach that I favor, I think mainly because language learning is such a kind of human phenomenon that is tied up with people's lives and the situations that they live in. I mean, there's always a reason why people are learning a foreign language or a second language. Um, and to get into that reason, you have to get into their lives. And also, when you ask the question, how are people learning languages? Again, you have to get into their lives. You know, it's a question of how do they spend their time? What kinds of things, you know, what kinds of things do they do in order to learn the language? And how does that fit in with their lives? And it seems to me that that's really only something you can investigate in an exploratory way. Um, it's 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 very different for each individual. It's very different according to the different contexts that people learn languages in, uh, the different reasons they learn languages for, the different languages they learn, of course. Um, all of those things. Uh, to, they 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 just say to me that you know you 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 need to delve into the detail. You need to delve into the stories of how people learn and why they learn, well, uh, where you, they, and where they learn. Of course, right? How so, do you how do you deal with supervising PhD students though? Because when I read this paper, I feel like you can't do this research until you've established yourself as a as an expert in the field. And again, this could be an ignorant opinion, but. As far as getting into a PhD program, you have, you have to prove your worth in some ways mm -hmm. with a solid research question. And then maybe when you get to a point in your career, you're able to do this with less sort of criticism. Like I just could imagine if you had a PhD student comes to you and says, well, I just want to do exploratory research and then figure it out. Um, I can't imagine you'd be happy with that. How would they frame a PhD thesis to you? using exploratory research where you would say, okay, well, this is legitimate and it's not just they're going to figure it out <laughs> once they get all this that, data. Yeah, if people come to me and they have a whole project worked out and they have a very, you know, very specific questions in mind and a very specific way of investigating them, I'd be inclined to say to them, okay, well, you know, come in and do the PhD. But actually, that's not really for me what a PhD is about. A PhD is about is about questioning everything that you think when you start, mm. um, and being prepared to to rethink things. So I might say, okay, you know, you've shown me that you can formulate those questions and you can design a project to do those questions. But I'm not. That's not necessarily the project you're going to end up doing uh, by the end of your PhD. And in terms of the PhD process, actually, I always um, th this actually rubs up a little bit against the sort of institutional requirements we have nowadays, because the institutional institutions tend to say, you know, you've got to be confirmed within three months or so, and you, you you've got to get you you've got to get to work on it straight away. Mm -hmm. um, but I tend to encourage students to spend six months or so reading, um, and just reading and thinking and and sort of trying to open up their mind to different possibilities. So to me, the whole PhD process should be exploratory. Um, it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be sort of closed up right at the beginning in terms of the questions that you have and what you're going to do. Um, so certainly, um, now if you come to me and say, 
I'd like to do a PhD, but um, I've no idea what I'm going to do, and <laughs> I'll have to work it out. <laughs> uh, then maybe, uh, uh, yeah, then maybe that maybe that would be a problem. So, um, but norm- normally, you know, when people come in and um, and we accept them as PhD students, they they have demonstrated that they've got some capacity for research. So, what would be? And an in exact- fact, because of, because of who I am, you know, right. I don't usually get people. I don't usually get inquiries from people who want to do do experimental research. Oh, really? And I and I should say, actually, sorry, I I really should be honest and say that part of my motivation for 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 being so interested in qualitative research is that I have no kind of head for statistics or statistical argument. I I don't I don't find it very convincing. Um, I don't remember numbers, so it's a kind of inclination as much as anything else. Well, um, can you, well, can you give me an example of? I, I like your idea about about uh, about the journey of the PhD. I think that's valid uh, because you know when you're when you're defending your your argument, you, you're probably going to make some changes along the way. What's an example of someone who comes in with maybe like a strong idea? And then they go through the PhD process, and then they've changed their idea. How how does that work? Does that is that just in the later chapters of the thesis, or that they say this is where I started and this is where I finished? Um. Uh, well, well, that yes, you can do that. I mean, that's that's reasonable to give an account of how your thinking and and the process developed over time. Yeah. Um, Often, in terms of writing a PhD, though, it's often people kind of um, reconstruct the process, if you like. So it looks as if they always intended to do, always intended to produce what they produced at the end, even though that wasn't the case. It's kind of, you know, it's it's a question of readability um, of a thesis or an article. Um, but but it is possible to do that. You can you you can sort of incorporate the process of research into the writing up of the research is it's that's a feature of quite a lot of narrative research but if you if you if i could go if maybe if i go back to that article and you said that we said that we didn't have a research question i, I did i did did we actually write that in the article i, yeah. I guess we did yeah um but although that's true um we did go into the research with a very clear idea of what we wanted to explore, if you like, um, and that was this problem of access to English. So we, you know, we had that little story there, this idea of of of, of, of people coming to Sydney to study English because it's such a great place, uh, supposed to be such a great place to study English. Um, uh, but when they get there, they complain that they, they don't really have opportunities to use English. They never meet English people, um, um, and so on and so on. And the English teachers, they also say, well, the students don't go out enough and they don't make enough effort to use English outside the classroom. So, so we had a very definite idea that there was something in that that didn't quite make sense. There was something in there that, that, that really needed to be explained and the way to do that was really to explore the problem how is it that people you know how is it that the schools can say that sydney is such a great place to meet people and use english 
and yet the teachers and the students <laughs> seem to seem to say no it's not well and see, that's why um, we I have thought... this problem so with that problem which well actually this comes from bonnie norton that term access to english mm-hmm. um but that problem of access to english was that was there as a very definite idea um that we that we wanted to explore well in the context of this article i think it works fine um because mm. i i think the argument against making a solid research question in the context of this data collection is the whole idea of bias so mm. And I've heard this. I've heard this argument before, and I think it's a valid one. Sometimes, when you're doing this sort of research, the way you frame the question could actually cause a bias in how you collect data. Like some, like this is you're basically just tracking people's behavior. So if you're if you're tracking people's behavior and you're trying to find yeah. um, patterns, or you're trying to, you, you, I can see. It actually was a really fun read. I really liked mm. reading it. And enjoying uh, following Karita's journey, and I didn't. I didn't think you really needed a specific research question, and I'm glad that you specifically said that. Um, I just don't think that I could get away with that, so I'm kind of jealous. I just don't know if that's something that like you have to get to a certain point in your career when you can say that, or this is more common in the narrative inquiry, uh, the field that you're kind of in. Yeah, I, I I'd also have to say that um, that. This particular article, um, which has had quite a bit of praise, you know, I mean, people, other people said, you know, it's a good read, it's it's, it's enjoyable to read. Um, but other people have questioned whether that is really research to spend so much of the article just telling somebody's story. Um, and uh, so the Australian Journal of Applied Linguistics, that was the first issue of the journal. It's an open access journal. It's got a quite an open editorial policy. Um, and I was really grateful to them that they published the paper, to be honest. I, I think other journals uh, may not have published a paper like that. Um, I, I love I, it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say which journal, I wouldn't say which, <laughs> but, but there are certain journals I'm pretty sure would not publish, would, would just say, no, no, that's not research, um, um, and would just re- reject the paper uh, out of hand. But, um, but yeah, so the Australian Journal of Applied Linguistics has got a more open policy and, and took the paper. Mm-hmm. I'm cool. very grateful to them. Well, let's for talk doing about that. the data collection because you. You had uh, the participants fill out an uh, online diary, um, yeah. and then you had them bring in that diary, and then they referenced their diary, but you didn't collect that data. I thought that was smart. Um, yeah. And then you – now, is this based on previous experiences and, and you sort of learn from your mistakes? Because that's what it kind of sounds like. But then you also mentioned yeah, so, before, before we hmm. talked that actually there was a part of this data collection where you didn't use the online diary. I'm not sure if that was in this paper. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. Um, so, yes, that's right. So when we began the, the study, well, in fact, the, the, the study itself, uh, so, so perhaps you should explain because people won't have read the paper yet necessarily. Um, the paper is one case study of one student mm-hmm. and her experiences over a week um, of um, of. of learning and using English and other languages. And she's a Colombian student, speaks Spanish. Um, now, that's one case study from a collection of about, I think, in the end, we had about 20 case studies 
and they were collected in two rounds. So the first round, we simply did an interview study. Mm-hmm. Um, and our interest, uh, particular at that time, really, is what, I guess you could say the theme of the interviews was, what do you do to learn English out of class? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what kinds of things do you do? And we asked, um, we had a research assistant do the interviewing, very capable research assistant did that interviewing. Um, and she had a series of topics to go through. You know, she had to check up on, like, make sure you ask about, do they have a part-time job? Um, what do they do at the weekends? What do you do in the evening? And so on. So to make sure that we try to sort of cover the whole week mm-hmm. and really get a comprehensive picture um, of what those students do. Now, what? so we got those interviews transcribed. And when we were looking at the transcripts, um, we actually got, we're getting a little bit frustrated because there were all these gaps. Mm. Um, and that was partly because we were all learning, I think, how to do the interviews. Um, but also because we really, the thing that we did learn was that we were not really systematic enough. Um, and particularly in regard to where things were happening. Mm. Yeah. So we would find out, you know, well, this is, you know, um, so, I wake up in the morning and um, I watch the news on TV. Then I come into town to school and then I go to work. Um, then, you know, I stay at school for, say, five hours and then I go to my job. Mm-hmm. So where did any of that happen? Where's right. the school? Where's no home? Detail, yeah. Where's the job? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do? In, what do you do on the train or the bus? How do you how do you get from home to, to school? Do you go on the bus? What do you do on the bus? Do you hear English on the bus? Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of thing, uh, we were not getting enough of that kind of detail. And um, I, in particular, came up with this idea, really, that the reason we're not getting that detail is because we're not focusing in enough on on place or space mm. or just simply where do things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in that first round, we we tried to sort of get the interviewer to 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 ask them where things happen but of course they she she would forget and you know it's quite natural when once you get into an interview Mm -hmm. so um so to cut a long story short we came up with a method um where we would rather than simply do an interview with people and ask them we would do we would do a process where they collected some sort of data um on their week on what they did over a week um, and then we would do a stimulated recall interview with them. Um, and we decided that we would use this diary app. Um, it's called Diaro. It's a free, you go to the, you go to the Android or the Apple app store. It's the first thing that pops up when you search for diary or journal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a straightforward journaling app. That's cool. Um, where you can keep, you write your diary on your mobile phone. Um, and you can add photographs and it's GPS enabled. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you don't write down where it was, where you did something, as long as you had your mobile phone switched on, we could set, we could, we could, the interviewer could ask you, well, where was that? 
and they say, I don't know. And you can say, well, you, actually, you do know because you just look up the GPS. Mm-hmm. It'll show you. We can, it'll show you on a map where you were. That's awesome. Uh, when you wrote that, when you wrote that particular entry. Yeah. So, so the method we used is we kind of gave them a training session. Mm-hmm. Um, we paid for the download. Well, we, you know, we give them uh, a little bit of um, compensation for participating in the project and they use part of that to buy the app it's not a free app but it's only 10 australian dollars it's very cheap mm-hmm. um and then we would ask them over the over the course of a week you know every time everywhere they went every time they changed their activity can you just make a little diary entry um and you can write something down or you can add a photograph and even if you don't have time to do anything just make the entry just make a blank entry mm-hmm. and it and it will tell us where you were yeah and what? then when when they came back out when they came back a week later then the interviewer said well can you, would you mind taking out your phone and we'll go through your diary uh day by day why did you, you decide us, us not you to did. use the data from the diary and just have uh, it <laughs> Well, uh, two reasons. One is we would um, um, we would have to get ethical clearance for that. Okay. Um, and the ethical clearance would be complex because it includes sort of photographs of other people. Right. Uh, right. It may include information about other people. It's unpredictable what they um, um, what they would write down right uh so what we would be getting from them and um yeah i was uh, so it's sort of ethically probably probably we could have got ethics clearance for that i'm not saying that we couldn't uh but it would have been complex to do so i gotta say following carita's story it seems like she put herself in a couple situations that i don't know were the safest so uh like i i just on the outside looking in i thought she followed this person to Parramatta. She's looking for the Olympic Park. She's in the rain. Her 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 phone battery is about to go out. Um, yeah, she was yeah. very adventurous. I I and I liked how she sort of didn't like to use yeah. Google, Google Maps, which which actually worked well for your research because then you could actually tell where she was. Because I yeah. could see like if you didn't have that that data, then she doesn't really know where she is. <laughs> she I mean she knows she's in between her home or Olympic. Yeah. Uh, but is that is that why you chose her because her story was so adventurous why why did you end up focusing on her in this paper i well yeah you read the story it's kind of she kind of chose herself in a way <laughs> i mean yeah it's the it it's the richest and the most interesting story we had in that data set the others are interesting but but um often interesting in different ways um and i think uh obviously Carita's not her real name mm-hmm. uh but her story is um was why it was interesting to me particularly was because it 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 was very much a story about space mm. uh, about the space of the city uh she was she she was very adventurous in the sense that um she really got about the city. She really used the space of the city mm-hmm. uh, in interesting ways, and she she wasn't afraid to do that. Yeah, um, the the and and I I think the thing that initially got me interested in that was the idea that she finished school on Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. 
and 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 just took out a phone and say, okay, we'll open the dating app mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and go meet somebody for a cup of coffee. Um, now, was that a dating app or was that a language exchange app? No, it's a dating app. See, I was confused because yeah. there's a popular language exchange app uh, that people mm. use in Japan. And that's what I thought she was using to talk to the guy in Germany. Because she said there was a friend uh, that she was ta- that she was chatting to in English who was fluent in Spanish. So I thought that I thought she was using multiple apps. It was just one. Um, that that wasn't very clear. I think that was a boyfriend, a boyfriend. Okay. Uh, that she'd met somewhere else and kept in contact with. Ah, so she wasn't necessarily um, chatting it wasn't, on the app. It wasn't quite clear whether. No, 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 no. No, she was. She she would have been using Skype or whatever okay. people use at that at that time. And um, well, okay, so this is exploratory, and one of the things we found out from exploratory research is that it's really not unusual for the English language students in Sydney to use dating apps mm-hmm. uh, as a way of meeting people. She um, met a few different people. One was. Uh, you know, it's like on you know, the way the to a business are, meeting or something. Uh, like uh, they, 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 they talked on the way to a business meeting, and then she took the bus home. That was kind of a funny meeting. story. What's that? His, yeah, his, his business meeting, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if I, if I, if I'm sorry, it was a couple of years ago that we finished the paper. So if I get the details wrong, oh, sure, it's fine. I apologize. But if I'm if I'm right, she um, she arranged to meet him in this in the city uh for a coffee and then after that coffee he was on his way to a business he was meeting her on his way to a business meeting so she went part of the way with him um and then she arranged to meet him the next day i mean she was and, and i have to say i oh, mean it, it it all sounds a bit racy but i think the and if you if you listen to the story it's, it's all very innocent well that's why um, i thought it was a language and exchange she, and she wouldn't have told her. i don't think she would have told us if it if it wasn't See, i mean that's uh, that's why i thought it was a language exchange app because that's it seems more common for language exchange it's meet for no, 30 I, minutes I, and exchange language but it didn't I'm sound not, like I, it was a dating app i'm not aware of language exchange apps that are used in sydney okay uh but but Certainly, I'm aware that 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 um, students do use dating apps quite a bit. Wow. Um, well, like I'm, I'm glad nothing, nothing, you know, dangerous happened. Um, no, no, but no, it, no. She's not the only student in our data who did that. Who, 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 who did that? And and of course, you know, the teachers are saying like, you you got to go out and meet people and talk mm-hmm. to people and so on. How how are you going to do that? Right. That's that's the way you do it, isn't it? Yeah, but her her whole concept about you're young and single. She always seemed a bit late, like she was running late. She'd always kind of miss the bus. (laughs) She'd always not really know where she was. It's like these are all sort of. I mean, I'm kind of like a fan of the podcast case file, so maybe I'm like biased. But these are all sounding like things that like dangerous things that could happen. Like I I was supposed to meet him at the Olympic Park. I've been there. That's a big place. Yeah, like there's a it's a huge area. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was yeah it was it was a fun, it was it was a fun read, and I I guess this was her second time in Sydney. The first time, but I guess. but also I mean she's a very resourceful person. What what mm. would you do if your what would you do if your phone is running out of battery? Yeah, she went into a restaurant, and right? She just goes she just goes into a cafe and uh, can I charge my phone? And she has a chat with the guys in the 
in the cafe. Well, she works in a cafe, so I guess maybe that maybe that helps. So this was her uh, second. She's, she's in that business, yeah. Her, her second time in Sydney, right? The first time yeah. she was she yeah. was serious, but then she ended up having like as many people do, having to work, and you keep working, making more money, and then your your goals kind of change. This time she wanted to be much more serious about English. Do we know what yeah. happened to her? Is she still in Sydney now? No, no, I don't know what happened to her. She she would have been there for uh, for three months or six months only. And then she would have either left or or gone on to start a study, say in university or in a in a college of some kind. Yeah, I got but I got the impression. No, I, I have no idea what happened. Her first her. time in Sydney, I got the impression that maybe she drifted more towards the Spanish speaking community, and maybe she worked more than she was going to school. That's that was kind of the the vibe I got. Well, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, for people who are listening elsewhere in the world. Um, you may not be familiar with that situation. It's it's very very easy as a Spanish speaking person, as a Chinese speaking person, as a Hindi speaking person to come to Sydney to study English and find that all your friends speak Hindi, Chinese, or Spanish. Mm. Um, you go get a part time job, and all your coworkers speak speak the same language as you, and so on, because they help you to you know. Somebody helps you find an apartment, somebody in the apartment helps you find a job, and so on. And you can very quickly find that you're in a community of co-national people. Um, and the the important thing, I think, about this multilingual city idea is that uh, this this can happen to you actually more or less whatever language you speak, because there are always yeah. there's always a community of uh, co-nationals there. I mean, I don't think it's mentioned in that article, but once one of the participants in that project who who perhaps um, I've talked to her about her in 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 conference presentations um, and contrasted her with another student. Um, now, the other student is also much more sort of expansive in her use of space and determined not to speak with people, not to meet people who speak the same language. But this particular woman was Mongolian, mm -hmm. and she spends all her time in Sydney with other Mongolians, um, speaking Mongolian. Um, and and she's in her interview, she's actually articulating that she's how difficult it is for her to get out of that situation. Mm. That she would really not like to be in that situation, but somehow she always finds herself sort of back with her Mongolian friends or contacts well, and so on Karita made a concerted uh, effort not to do that this time i think the first time yeah, probably did, that happened yeah. this time she got a job where everyone was supposed to speak english even though it was a mexican restaurant so she really yeah. did a good job of that she was still working at a mexican restaurant but not everyone was were spanish speakers and the policy was to speak english she had multiple roommates that weren't from colombia right they were all different nationalities yeah. so she did a good job i guess she learned from her mistakes she probably drifted into that situation where she was just speaking Spanish all the time. Yeah, and I think that's actually not a not unusual in study abroad. Um, and a lot of the research on study abroad in the past, I think, has kind of sort of treated it as a one-off thing. You know, it's like you go and do the study abroad once in your life, mm -hmm. um, and and this is what it's like. Uh, but in fact, what we find now is that people tend to have several experiences of study abroad in their lives yeah and and 
a previous experience can have quite a big impact on the next experience, particularly, you know, if the, I think often the first one, I wouldn't want to say exactly it might be a negative experience, but when you talk to somebody who's on their second experience, they kind of represent the first one as, as, as being a series of, of mistakes that they're correcting in the second experience, as you, as you said. Right. Well, that, that's not that's not unusual at all. Well, the article is a day in the life mapping international students language learning environments in multilingual city. Can we connect this to the book that's coming out? I think you said this is uh, somewhat connected to the book, right? Or was were some of these stories also uh, in the book? Uh, <clears throat> they're referenced in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a there's a little bit more uh, of that data in the book. Um, but the, um, actually it may have, maybe the subtitle should be the title, the spatial perspectives, because, because most of the first part of the book, the first half or more half, more than half of the book is the spatial perspectives on SLA. Mm. Um, and then it goes into this discussion of language learning environments. Um, but it's, but it's linked to Carita's story because if I, I, I guess what what we tried to show through her story by telling her story, um, and it, it's it's kind of not a conclusion of something, but I think the whole story sort of shows this is how language learning is is the use of space. Mm. Um, it's it it's it's arranging your everyday life uh, so that you you engage with an environment um, that uh, that helps you to learn the language or doesn't, um, de- depending on the situation. So this idea of language learning environment, that's really at the core of the book, and it's also at the core of the article. And it's this idea that, that in two senses, language learning is about interaction with an environment and so in in one sense the environment for her is sydney so you could say the environment for any language learner is the place that that they live um but in the other in another sense the environment is the is sort of the particular pathways it's the environment that she makes for herself how long have you been working on this book? Uh, well, since um, uh, probably 2000, in a sense, all my life. But um, uh, in another in another sense, I guess since about 2017. Wow. Well, um, this is this is great. It's coming out this year. You must be happy. Yep. Yep. It's good. It's um, it, it does sum up a lot of thinking that I've been doing over the last few years. Do you get and, kind uh, of depressed when you finish a big project? Are you one of those people like on to the next or do you, I mean, I, I get a little they, bit depressed yeah, after finishing yeah. something big. Yeah. I mean the, the book itself involved a lot of reading of theories of space mm-hmm. um, in, in, um, in, well, I guess they're centered on geography, but uh it also sort of expands out into social theory um, as well. There's a lot of sort of theories of space in sociology. So it involved a lot of reading 
um, really, really interesting reading outside the field of applied linguistics. And of course, once I'd written the book, I don't quite have the reason to carry on with that reading. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sense of depression is like, you know, I'd like to, I, I'd still like to be doing this. I'd still like to be writing this book. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's finished. And, you know, instead of, uh, instead of developing the ideas in it, I think it's, um, it's a, it's a question of trying to get those ideas out there and get, get other people to discuss them. Well, the book is Language Learning Environment, Spatial Perspectives on SLA. In the show notes, you can click the link. And if you type in the code L-L-E-B-E-N 50, you can get 50% off price if you purchase before the end of June. And this is, yeah, this is great timing. I actually, when when uh, we organized this interview, I didn't know this book was coming out. So it was fortuitous. Yeah. Very, very cool timing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's good for me as well. And again, the article is A Day in the Life, Mapping International Students' Language Learning Environments in Multilingual Sydney. Uh, Professor Benson, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Did you you just mention that that's an open access article? So if you're listening to this and you're in a situation where it's difficult for you to get hold of journal articles uh, because you don't have that kind of access, this is open access. Um, So anybody anywhere in the world can get it and read it. Yeah, I think if you just type this into the Google Scholar, you'll definitely yeah. see a PDF. Yeah. It comes up yeah. uh, right yeah. away. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Professor Benson, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you for inviting me. It was great fun. Thanks. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.